Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Amen. Well, feel free to have a seat. It's good to see you all this morning. And you may not realize it, but believe it or not, we are halfway through the book of Romans. Now, for those of you who may not have been with us all summer long, uh, we, we are halfway through the book of Romans. And uh, we've been taking Romans over the summer, one chapter every week, and working through it together. Now, I've had several people come up to me and say, is this what we always do, or is this what we're always going to do? Now, I agree. Sometimes it can feel like you're getting a fire hose worth of scripture every Sunday. No, this isn't what we always do or will always do, but, but we want to model different things about how we engage scripture in our lives, even from the stage. You know, I hope, I hope when you go to scripture that oftentimes when you come to a book in the Bible that you read it all the way through the first time. I mean, if you come to Micah, I pray that you pray all the way through Micah. I pray if you come to 2 Timothy, the letter, you read it all the way through. That's how most of the books of our Bible are meant to be engaged. And in doing so, you you begin to see this this, uh, big picture, really big picture of what God is doing there. And you shouldn't be surprised that it... Maybe at some point, someone from this stage preaches on just one whole book in one sermon. One sermon. Give, you, give you a taste, a feel for, for what is there, and maybe entice you to go and engage it and read it yourself. And then I hope most of the time, then when you're reading through Scripture yourself, that you slow down, then go back through that book a little bit slower, right? Maybe chapter by chapter, or a lot of our Bibles have really helpful headings there to break it down into what's happening. And that's what we're trying to do in this series, we're trying to break it down that next step where we try to examine the forest and for not, not get stuck on every single tree. Uh, to see what someone like Paul here in Romans is saying, what his concerns are, what he says God is doing, and see it through this, this whole long letter. And then, as we oftentimes do, we slow down and we look at one or two or three verses, really dig in and see what each one is saying, see the particularities of how that works out in, in that book of the Bible, but also in other books. You know, part of what we're trying to model there is this idea of looking at biblical theology and systematic theology. You know, systematic theology is where we, we take individual ideas and we try to pair them up throughout scripture to have a concise theology about it. And biblical theology doesn't mean just theology that comes from the Bible, but rather a theology that spans the entire Bible from beginning to end. What is God doing? What's been his great big moves? What has been his purposes and how has he accomplished that? And by engaging at different levels, we kind of give different ones of those priority at any moment, right? Reading just two or three, maybe four verses at a time preferences systematic theology. Reading a whole chapter at a time tends to preference biblical theology. And we want to be whole people. We want to see all of those play out in our lives and in our studying. So we want to model it at different times from up here as well. And so that's where we're at. We find ourselves halfway through the book of Romans, having looked at one chapter a week. And this week, we are turning to chapter 9. And especially because we're at the halfway point, and also because Paul is, is making a shift here. Uh, we want to kind of look back and review. I know we've gone through reviews a couple times in, in Romans, but I want to do another one here just to kind of get us all caught up to speed with where we're at in Romans 9. So remember, remember way back to Romans 1, and this is where Paul started. He said this, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the good news, the gospel, that that God wants to save us by faith in Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is so excited to share with his brothers and sisters in Rome. He's wanting to send them a letter to make sure they treasure this as much as he does. But as we talked about, he quickly pivots, even at the very beginning of Romans, from the good news to the bad. Because so often to understand the good news, we need to know the predicament that we are in, that we are all sinners that we all have failed to rightly live as image bearers of God. And Paul in chapter two, or Paul in chapter uh, one begins by reminding us that we can all know this because of general revelation, uh, believers and unbelievers, that we can see by nature and by our own consciences that we are sinners and that we failed to live rightly. And then in chapter two, Paul reminds us it isn't necessarily any better to be under the special revelation of God's law, that even when he tells us about his nature, his character, the things he would want for us, we still fail. We still don't live up to it. We don't just have a knowledge problem, we have a heart problem. We need our hearts to be changed, that we would even want to follow God, to want to love Him. We need our identity to become wrapped up in our relationship with Him. You know, Paul is preparing at the beginning of Romans, preparing us, preparing his readers in Rome uh, to better understand the solution. He wants us to start to see that we need righteousness, yet we can't find it on our own. And where are we going to get it from? You know, we see this idea, this idea that, that we need the very righteousness of God, the, this righteous act by which a righteous God brings people into right relationship with himself by making them righteous in Jesus Christ. And this is this whole package that we need, all these changes. And in chapter 3, Paul tells us exactly how that happens. He does this most glorious but now, this change that has occurred because of Jesus Christ, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God did it all. He did it all through the righteous life of Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross and through his resurrection in power. God righteous us in every way imaginable. And in doing so, he showed himself to be just he, he justified us. He was justified in all of his actions. And we all have this moment, this moment where we experience justification. You know, this idea, this moment where the righteous God declares those who have faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ as being righteous in him. That happened for me and you. That happens to everyone who believes in Jesus by faith. We are declared justified in that moment. And that's a critical point here in Romans God didn't do that because of our works. He didn't do that by looking at anything that we did. He didn't look at it by think about anything we were going to do in the future. God did it by the works of Jesus Christ alone and through faith. So we're told in Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We should always be humbled by this reality 
that it is not anything that we did, that it was because of a righteous God who did everything for us that we might be back in relationship with him, that we might be made righteous before God is an incredible grace and mercy and an act that he did for us. And then for some, as Paul's writing, they, they might be wondering, then why did God only do this just now in Jesus? Why is faith in Jesus now only the option today? And that's what Jack Morgan taught about and Paul talks about in Romans chapter 4 as he goes back to the very beginning and even goes back to Abraham and says, this has always been the plan. It's always been by faith. That Abraham, by faith, trusted in God. Then he was circumcised. He didn't do works first that God might, might look on him favorably, but rather he had faith that God would even do what he would do. And as Paul said in Romans 4, 9, that it was counted to him as righteousness. We began to see hope, this hope that we are all to have, that has always been the only hope that anyone could ever have, that God himself would show up and do what we needed so desperately. And that's what chapter 5 continued on, which was hope. Anthony Higgins preached and taught on this. And Paul reminds us that we have hope now because we are identified in someone else. Yes, Jesus did very real things on the cross. He took away our sin. He gave us his righteousness. But even more so, we now are found in relationship with Jesus. God sees us through Jesus when he looks at us. It's a beautiful thing to be found in relationship in Jesus. Rather than being identified in Adam in whom we all sinned, we are now counted righteous through what we received in Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful exchange that has occurred. And in chapter 6, Paul, Paul shifts and he says, don't presume upon this grace that you've been given, which I don't know about you is so, so much a temptation for me. We begin to forget one of two things. One, we forget that in Jesus we have died to sin. Or we forget that we have been given this new heart that is meant to pursue righteousness. And Paul in chapter 6 calls us to lay those things down, to remember that sin no longer reigns in you, rather to remember that it is Christ and the Holy Spirit reigning in you, drawing you towards himself, that there is a real fight for sanctification, for growth, to be more like Jesus Christ occurring all the time in our life. And what Paul exhorts us is don't run back to trying to do the law. Rather, run back to grace again and again and again. When you're struggling with your sanctification, to look back to the beauty of what Jesus has done for us and to rest in what he has secured for you and then trust him to work that out in your life through the Holy Spirit, which leads naturally to chapter 7 where Paul says, I feel your frustration. I don't do the things I want to do. The things I want to do, I don't do. And he says, praise be to God that Jesus Christ is there. We are these people in the middle, these people who, as we are still in the flesh, when we are confronted by the very good things, try to grab for it, try to strive for it, and it's deadly to us. And Paul reminds us it's not the law itself that's the problem. It's how it interacts with our fleshly nature, that it corrupts us, it turns us, and we no longer rely on grace. Now, even in our sin, God will get the glory because we must look to Jesus as our salvation in every moment of failure, which led to chapter 8, which Pastor Bren taught on just two weeks ago. This beautiful reminder that we have assurance because we are found in the Spirit of God. We have a future, a hope that is better than what we see today. This reality where God will complete what we see started now. You know, there is no condemnation for us now in Jesus Christ as heirs, we wait expectantly 
for a future hope that we have, a future that will make all the suffering that we experience here like a grain of sand compared to the mountain ranges of joy that we will experience before our God in the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, that's, that's a long review, I know, but I think it's so wonderful to place ourselves back into the story. What, what Paul has been telling us consistently throughout Romans 1 through 8. He's speaking not just about our salvation, but about our justification, not just our sanctification for today, but our future glory with our God. It's also helpful because Paul kind of takes a different turn here in chapter 9. And we can see a contrast in what's been happening from the first eight chapters. You know, he moves off of this teaching about who Jesus is, what all has occurred for us because of him, and he instead starts to share a lament starts to share how he's feeling in a lot of ways about some of these thoughts. And he lets us into his mind about how he's troubled, and he, I think he assumes that we, and even some of his readers, are having some of these troubling thoughts as well. You know, I imagine that's not a new experience for you, that we all, at different times in life, are kind of going along, maybe even having a really joyful moment, and then some sort of knowledge, some sort of thought comes in that kind of shakes up what's going on in our life. It's maybe something you weren't even looking for. Maybe it was something you didn't really want to know, but it kind of intrudes. It, it captures you. I had, I had that experience several years ago. I was actually attending an event with some of the Rev leaders before I was even a member here. And we were driving around. We decided to stop and grab a coffee at, at one of those big chain places. And I said, what I would really like is a raspberry mocha. And one of our leaders so kindly pointed out to me, do you know that raspberry syrup used to come from the excretions of beaver glands? See, like some of you, I had a vehement reaction in the back of that car. You know, what they didn't know at the time was, I don't really like coffee. See, my coffee is like 75% cream with some coffee put in just so I can call it legitimately coffee. And starting back in the 90s, when a friend said to me, hey, you want to go to coffee with me? And I'm like, this is crazy. Who goes to coffee? That's like what 70, 80-year-old women go to do. I'm not doing that. And he was like, no, 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 come with me. Guess what? We're going to get a raspberry mocha. It can be chocolate milk with raspberry flavoring and just a little bit of coffee in there. And so from 1992 to today, I have largely drank raspberry-flavored mochas, lattes, or coffees. And in the backseat of that car, I was realizing that somehow I had consumed thousands of beavers (laughs) worth worth of fluid. (laughs) Thankful for Google that quickly said, no, that might have been true that this person, when they told me back in the 1900s, they used to do this early on, but they don't do this anymore. Can you imagine poor Starbucks and their factories of beavers (laughs) trying to supply what they needed? You know, that's a funny example, yet it also happens in, in other ways, right? I I remember in 1996 sitting in, a, in the airport with my, my parents. They're about to fly off on a trip to go adopt my younger, one of my younger sisters. And uh, this will be an analogy that most of you won't really remember, but uh, the, this voice comes on over the loudspeaker and says, Greg Eagy, Greg Eagy, will you please come to the white courtesy telephone? Now, back in the day before cell phones, the, the airport had a way that you could call them and they would, they would announce to someone to come if it was really an emergency or something was going on. It was never a good thing to be called to the white courtesy telephone. And I remember us all kind of looking at each other and having that moment of, oh, something's not good. And dad gets up, goes over, picks up the phone, and begins crying because he was told his dad passed away that night. 
We, we have moments in our life where knowledge breaks in in ways that we may not be ready for, and it's, it, it brings up something within us, and that's, that's what's been happening to Paul here. Even in the midst of recalling for us the beauty and the glory of what God has been doing for us in Jesus Christ, something is starting to intrude into his mind. That's where he starts here in Romans 9. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul is saying all of this, and he's looking around at his fellow Jewish countrymen, and he's seeing almost none of them turning to Jesus Christ in faith. And that's troubling for him. It's crushing. Uh, Paul is thinking, these are the Jewish people. These are the very people that God adopted and brought for himself. They're the ones that he gave his very presence, a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. It indwelt the tabernacle and the temple inside and above He gave them the law and he had priests that worshiped him in sacrifice and song. He gave them his promises, yet so many were not serving him in faith. You know, Paul is so distressed that he makes an amazing statement here. He says, if I could, I mean, maybe the better way to translate it is if if it would even do any good, I would consider being cut off from God, that they might have faith. And that's a bold statement. He's so distraught at thinking about all these countrymen, these Jewish brothers and sisters that are not coming in, that he he wants to see something happen. And and it's carrying this great weight for him. We have to ask, why? Why is this such a great weight on Paul just besides his friends? Why would he consider cutting himself off from God if it might solve the situation? I mean, for Paul, the question here is that these are God's chosen people, as they were called in the Old Testament. They were the ones who received his promises. If they aren't coming to faith, what hope does he have that God's really doing that for me and you? It's shaking him down to his core. Is God really good? Is he doing what he has done? If if God's abandoned Israel, what, what means he won't abandon me and you someday? And upon pondering it, I think, I think probably over years, over a lot of time, Paul has thought about this, and Paul can say definitively in Romans 9, 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. He looks at the situation and says, no, God has not failed. He has not gone against his character. He has not changed. He is not failing. He has not failed his promises to Israel. He will not fail his promises to me and you. He is good. For Paul to answer this question of how is this possible? How is God still fulfilling his promises to Israel? And how is he going to continue to fulfill them to me and you? He has to turn to this idea of election. This idea of who does God choose? You know, Paul's concern about the Jewish nation is going to lead to this longer discussion here in Romans 9 about who gets chosen by God. And for many Christians, this has been a hard topic to think through. I think it's hard for all of us, me included, In fact, I think if we follow Paul's logic all the way through here in Romans 9, we find that that's what he assumes is going to happen. 
He assumes by talking about this, it's going to bring up feelings, difficult thoughts. It's going to cause you to wrestle. It's not going to just be this slam dunk, easy answer. In fact, I think Paul very purposely leaves us with a lot of tension in Romans 9 that he doesn't try to solve. You know, in one sense, we shouldn't be surprised that this is where Paul ends up. When we, when we look at Romans 1 through 8, he says a lot of different things like this throughout the very beginning. You know, he tells us that there's nothing that we can do to make our salvation happen. He tells us that we need God to give us righteousness, that we need him to change our heart. And what Paul is noting specifically here in the problem of Israel is that there's some that just aren't chosen, it doesn't seem. They don't seem to all have faith. For him, that's his leaping point. Maybe for you and me, it's a family member. Maybe it's a close friend or a neighbor that comes to mind and says, it doesn't seem like God's working in their life. What is going on here? And Paul knows that this brings many questions to our minds. And he's going to tackle a lot of it boldly. And he's going to leave us with a lot of areas we still need to debate. And Paul's going to look up at this idea of election, which naturally brings up the converse, who isn't elected, who isn't chosen. And so I appreciate it where Paul starts in Romans 9, because I think it's so often missing from where we start. If we don't start where Paul is starting this moment, with a lament, with a sadness, that there are people who will not be chosen, you do not understand the horrors of judgment and hell. I would even say that you might not value then, conversely, the beauty of being known by God. It is a sad thing that some people don't experience this. And we should be remembering what Paul has been telling us, even from Romans 2. That's what we deserved. We didn't do anything that made us worthy of the mercy. That wasn't something that we did because we were so special or good. It just happened because of God's saving grace. Now, this is one of the two problems that we encounter when we come to this topic, and we'll see both of them dealt with throughout this chapter. Some people arrogantly act as though this is something to be flippant about, to even be smug when declaring that some are elect and they are, are not elect and they are. That's not at all how Paul approaches this topic. And the second problem we often encounter in this discussion about election is a problem where people are unwilling to let God, the great sovereign, the eternal I am Yahweh, be God and declare who he is and how he is. And we presume to put ourselves in a position where we say to God, if you can't explain why you do what you do and how you do it in a way that I can understand, you are obviously wrong. I pray this morning as we come to this section that that's that's a starting point for all of us, a heart that's actually sad at the idea that some might not be chosen and a heart that says, God, I want to humbly though let you share with me who you are, what you do and why you do it. One of the main arguments we're going to see that Paul is going to use throughout this section is that election, God's choosing, has always been going on has always been happening. And in particular, he's thinking about how it's always been happening within the people of Israel. That's where he starts here in Romans 9, 6 through 13. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul is saying that God has always had and always done things where he has shown mercy to some and not to others. That's the idea of election. And Paul starts with with Israel's own history. He takes them back into their own reality, and he goes all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael. You know, we see this account where, where, where we have two descendants of the flesh from Abraham, and yet God in the Spirit only chooses one of them to continue on all the promises that God gave to Abraham. This is the first part of of Paul's argument, that that just to be in the right fleshly line doesn't mean you receive all the things, that not all Israelites are going to be seen as, quote, Israel, the ones to receive the promises. He says you can see that even from the very beginning with Isaac and Ishmael. I mean, in one sense, this is a continuation of what Paul's just been saying in chapter 8 that we find ourselves in the Spirit, and that we find in the Spirit that we, there is no accusation against us, that by being in the Spirit that we are the heirs, the true ones that God has chosen. You know, yet he realizes this also might not be a sufficient argument for most of Israel. They might say, well, listen, that was a one-time gig. That was back with, with Ishmael and Isaac. We're all in the line of Isaac, so we don't have to worry about that anymore. So he goes, well, let's look at Isaac's kids, right? He looks at it and says, remember Rebecca, remember Jacob and Esau, And he particularly points out that before they were even born, had done neither good nor bad, that something was decided. Where in the first example, he's pointing out this idea of the fleshly line and the spiritual. Here, he's making sure we see that God can choose, even from that same line, even from the line of Isaac, that he has his people. That they were not not chosen because of anything they did, but simply because of God's choice. It's clear here that he's talking about individuals, not just big groups, individuals and their outcomes, their their salvation. And Paul is saying that throughout time, God has always had a plan where he chose, elected certain people to receive his grace and others that didn't. You know, Paul uses words here that can be translated as loved and hated. It's probably better to be favored and not favored, favored or rejected. You know, it's not as though we're supposed to think that God looked upon Esau and had some sort of emotional response to him, this vehement hatred, and so he just decided not going to do it. Rather, it's the outcome of what God's actions were. He chose to do something for Jacob and didn't do something for Esau, and the effect of that was favoring and unfavoring. I think you can begin to see here a paradox forming, a tension that we're going to have to hold something that Paul is not going to fix for us. Paul has been saying throughout Romans 1 through 8 again and again and again that you and I are saved by faith through Jesus Christ. And he's going to say it again and again from chapter 10 through 16. Yet here, when he talks about God's role, he says that God elects some with no regards to their actions, and he doesn't elect others. Paul is going to continue to expand on that, but I'm going to tell you right now he doesn't alleviate that tension. That tension of seeing what God does, but also knowing that we are called to have faith, and that's how we are saved in Jesus Christ. In fact, I think the tension grows. And we continue to see Paul bring back in the emotions, the way he has throughout most of Romans, where he brings in this imaginary discussion, and it's kind of a heated topic back and forth to help let us know that he gets it. That's where our hearts are going in the midst of this conversation. 
You know, his, his main discussion here about, about his Jewish countrymen and folks would most naturally go straight to Romans 9.23, where it says, He, God, has prepared a people beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Right? That, that's where the argument should go, that, the, that this choosing, electing act of God was not just something that was occurring within the, the Israelites, but something that he does as well through the Gentiles. But Paul, knowing what's rising up within us, stops. And that's what we get in this interim section from Romans 14 to Romans 23. He's dealing with uh, what this, in one sense, a solution of election helps him explain what's going on with Israel, what it brings up within our own hearts. That's where he goes. So Romans 9, 14, he says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. Paul has heard it all, and I think Paul has probably thought it all. He struggled through this, wondered it. And the question here is, is God acting properly? Is God acting rightly, righteously, good? Because if you and I need the righteousness of God, what good is it if our own God doesn't act right, doesn't act righteous himself? Everything that Paul would have been sharing with us would fall apart again at this point. How can we do this if this is not a good God? And to answer the question, Paul takes us back to Exodus 33 where Moses is pleading with God to pass before him that he might see him. And one of the things that God chooses in that moment to say to Moses is, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on who I have compassion. This is a core attribute of God. It's part of who he is, and if you think about it, what kind of God would he be if that wasn't true? If you stripped away his powers to give mercy to who he wants to give mercy to, to give compassion to who he wants, he would now be answering to some sort of higher power, some sort of higher law than himself, if he was not free to choose to do what he wants to do. You know, on the negative side here, Paul notes Pharaoh and and how God says that he raised him up, which is not a good phrase here. It's the idea of putting him forward so that God might be glorified through his bad actions. You know, and he ends the section here with, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You know, Paul leaves no way to escape this idea that God's love and hate, favoring, unfavoring in election will lead to something. It leads to receiving mercy for some and to receiving hardening for others. Again, this is not an easy thing to to ponder, to work through how that works, why that works exactly. There's tensions that you and I are beginning to need to hold. I mean, first and foremost, thinking about just this section here and these statements, we need to remember two different things here. God's mercy is given to those who don't deserve it. His hardening affects those who have already, by their sin, deserved condemnation. They're not given out the same. Those who are in love and, and with their own sin and their own image, their own ways, are simply allowed to continue on and their hearts are hardened to not see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. What's the real conundrum in the world? Is Why you? Why me? Why anyone got grace? Why anyone got mercy? 
That's the shift. That's the one given in a way that makes no sense. And similarly, we are having to hold these tensions as we go through this. That God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will harden whom he will harden. And human beings, because of their sin, are responsible for their actions. These three are just truisms that Paul keeps coming back to. He's not trying to necessarily tell you how they all work out intricately, but saying you are culpable for what you do, and God is the one who elects to mercy, and God is the one who hardens. You know, Paul, for Paul, the answer for what to think about his Jewish brethren and how God is still good to his promises to them ran through election, and yet he realizes he's drumming up almost more problems in one sense for us as he goes deep into election and how we think about it. You know, again and again, when you come to this, this concept, whether you read scholars or you think about it yourself, so often the temptation is to try to, to come up with a better solution. Let's just talk about this as though these are, this is God choosing nations and how nations fall out and what occurs at a big level, but not individuals. Or if it's individuals, it's because he's looked into the future and seen what they were going to do, and then he'll elect them, and then he'll not choose others. And, and I, I hope what you're seeing with me as we work through this section, as difficult as it is, I don't know about you, but for me, because Paul keeps coming back to the same argument that pops into my head every time, it, it reminds me that he really is saying what I think he's saying. He's saying a kind of hard thing, something hard for me to grasp and fully understand all the way. I mean, look where he goes next. He says this. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? That's exactly where my mind wants to go. You're telling me you show mercy on whom you want to show mercy and compassion. You harden others. How are you going to blame them now? That doesn't seem fair. Paul goes there because he is saying the hard thing here. He's telling you these two things that don't seem to jive for our small, finite, created minds. We can't put it all together. Here's what Paul says in totality here in Romans 9, 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to, show, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which is he has prepared beforehand for glory? Paul doesn't answer the question, not, not fully. Paul, Paul starts with a response that looks to our identity. He, he asks us, do you, do I, do we remember that we are the created ones and that he's the creator? Does he not, as creator, have the right to take from the same lump from all of humanity, that's the imagery here, and for some, designate them for honor or dishonor, like a potter would. A potter making bowls that who knows how you're going to use it, one to wash your dog, one for you to eat from. We don't know. God has that prerogative. You know, yes, we, we are encouraged to push in, to seek to know God, to delve into the depths of his mind and the mysteries of his way and find them glorious and beautiful and praiseworthy, but we will never fully grasp 
his ways. Look what the prophet Isaiah says the Lord says to us. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's Paul's primary answer here. How can God still find fault? He does. He's given us responsibility. We are still sinners. As we said before, him hardening doesn't come to sinners who weren't already sinning. It's his mercy that comes to sinners who never deserved it. That's the problem. And yet I would say Paul begins to give us a glimpse of an idea of why. He doesn't want to leave us completely without a try here. And I, and I think he, he dives in here and he, he starts with that idea of what if? What if God? What if God, being willing to endure with vessels of wrath, at the very end says to here, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand in glory. It's this idea that God was patient with those who were not elect, that he might bring some to election. It's where he goes next in Romans 9, 24 through 29. He says this, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he has said in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, and they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, we would not have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. God's patience over the scope of time with those who are not elect is that his glory to some of those who he wants to choose could be possible. It's our reality that you and I live in today. Had God been impatient to show his wrath against sin early on, I venture to bet none of us would be in this room. We all have great, 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 great grandparents back however far you want to go that did not want to follow the Lord. And yet in God's wisdom, in his patience, look who's sitting here today. Me and you. Vessels of mercy that God prepared beforehand that he wanted to see come to know him. He wanted to share his goodness with. Why he would choose to wait through all that for me, I don't. I don't know. At times that doesn't seem worth it, yet Paul is, is pushing us here to say, what if that's what he did? Are you going to argue then that in his omniscient and good plan, he allowed some to live who were horrible? For all you and I know, we are descendants from people worse than Hitler. And yet because of God's patience, you have a chance to have his mercy and compassion bestowed upon you that you might marvel at his grace in Jesus Christ. How ridiculous is that? That God would love me and you that much. You know, Paul goes on to look at these different stories. The story of Hosea, who, who God calls to marry a prostitute who has children. They're not even his children. I mean, he's totally like the anti-Jonah. He steps into like the hardest thing you could ever imagine and actually does it. And here he has these children who are named not my people and no mercy right? Notice who's not here, no mercy, but not my people, not my people. God says, I will call my people. That's me and you. We are not my people. Yet in God's providence, he brought us in and guess what he names us? My people and 
sons and daughters of the Most High God. That's who we are because of the patience of our God, because of his willingness to work out the plans and his wisdom in ways that so far beyond me that I can't even comprehend it. For Israel, he goes to Isaiah, Isaiah who's talking about the northern kingdom, who's going into exile. But here Paul applies it to all of Israel saying, God left us a remnant. He left us someone. If he hadn't left us someone, yes, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah, but that's not true. We are not desolate. It is not God. God's promises to Israel truly are fulfilled by those in Israel who truly are Israel that he elected, that he brought through, that did come to faith. People like Paul, people like many of the disciples. I think this brings us to kind of three concluding points this morning. First, I want to give you permission that this concept, this concept that God elects some and doesn't elect others is something you might need to wrestle with your entire life. That's okay. I'm not fully settled and okay with all aspects. It's very hard to engage with. I don't know that Paul was all the way there yet. I would beg you, don't go against what scripture says. Trust the very nature of God and what he's revealed to us. He's told us this is what he does. As hard as it is for our minds to jive it all together and understand every aspect of how it works, he says this is part of his very nature and being. Admit that it's hard. Press in to know God more. Study his word in this way and ask that he would give you insight as you study, pray, and walk with him daily. Second, pray for those that you don't know or don't believe yet have received this kind of mercy. Because here's the truth. If that mercy from God was good enough for me and you, is it not good enough for anyone else? If the same God that would look on me in favor would look on you in favor and select us, would he not be willing to select another sinner? So pray for them. Yes, walk your life out as a steward to God, walking out your life in ways that people see the gospel, hear the gospel, are invited in regularly, but pray for them. Pray that the almighty God would do what only he can do, which is shower mercy and compassion on them. But lastly, and the thing I pray you don't miss in the heaviness and the difficulty of this today, is worship. Worship God because you were given mercy and compassion. That is what should be striking here this morning. Yes, there is much to try to understand of how it works for those who don't and why does God do it this way, ways I don't fully understand. But what you and I should walk away marveling at this morning is that we have received mercy and compassion. When Paul talks about the same thing in Ephesians, here's what he says. He says, in him, Jesus We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, you and me, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." It's a summary of everything Paul's been saying here in one sense in Romans 9. And he says, our end reaction to this should be the praise of God's glory. Praise him for his wondrous ways that you have fallen into his hands of mercy and compassion. Be astounded that God would do that for us, that he would give us what we should have never deserved, mercy and compassion. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord God, these are hard things 
We are, we are striving to peer into the mind of our Creator as the created. Lord God, would we hold rightly in tension these beautiful truths that you've told us, that you are the God who shows mercy and compassion on whom you will show, and you are the God who hardens hearts. Lord God, would we still then take responsibility for our actions, truly be humbled as sinners before you, Lord God, and do the only thing we can do, which is cast ourselves in faith upon your grace and mercy in Jesus. Lord God, would that be true for us? Would we then marvel at the breadth and depth and height of your love? Would we see in that a God who is so good, so loving, so perfect, that in the areas we don't quite understand, we trust that that's a a lack in our abilities, not a lack in your goodness, not a lack in your glory and beauty. Lord God, as we come to communion this morning, would you help us to dwell then on the beauty of what you provided for us in Jesus Christ? Mercy and compassion poured out on us in abundance. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.